Father, it's an amazing thing to find our lives bound up in the life of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we give you the glory and we give you the praise, Lord, because it is due your name for all that you are, who you are, all that you've done. We stand amazed in your presence. Lord, as we continue before you this morning and we look in the word, we pray that our hearts and minds would continue to be open so that we might receive the things that you have for us this day. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We're going to go just a little bit over this morning. And if you have to leave early, that's all right, because you've already heard the message. So uh, Daniel gave the first part, Stan gave the second part, and literally Will gave the third part. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. (laughs) So there you have it. Dismissed, no. (laughs) So in fleshing that out... Uh, A number of uh, times over the years, perhaps you've heard it too, but I have heard the phrase, uh, jump the shark. And it's usually a rep. Have you ever heard that? Who's heard that phrase, jump the shark? Wow, not as many hands as I would have thought, but still some hands. Well, let me let you in on popular uh, culture if you didn't know this. Jump the shark. It's usually in reference to a TV show. Uh, however, it's been used of politicians and, and even automobiles. In fact, automotive journalist Dan Neal uh, writes about the, the really, truly, the, the wildly popular BMW, the Mini Series. Well, the BMW Mini Series came out with a minivan. And so he wrote that the, uh, what part of Mini did you not grasp? BMW, you've jumped the shark. So the the phrase is used to describe a moment when something that was once great has reached a point where it's either declined in tone or quality or popularity. Now, how how many of you ever heard of happy days? Happy days? Okay, more hands go up. How about the Fonz? You know who the Fonz is, right? Well, this phrase originated with happy days in the fifth year, so it was 1977, and Fonz, to prove his bravery, decided in leather jacket and all that he was going to jump over a shark that was in a pen. So he ski jumped over a ramp and over the shark, and sure enough, that's where it came from. And even though the show remained popular, the original theme and tone of the show completely changed because Fonz started becoming a bit of a superhero. Now, Ron Howard, you'll recall, was in that show with him, uh, later said that that was the episode when Happy Days jumped the shark. So he used the metaphor in order to talk about the origin of the metaphor. And according to the Washington Post, they published the top three COVID-related feelings 
because they described 2020 had jumped the shark. So the Post wrote, This year feels like one very long season of a TV show that keeps throwing random plot devices and crazy situations at viewers just to stay on the air. So here are the top three, if you didn't know already. First, 2020 was exhausting. (laughs) I don't need to say anything about that. Second, Lost. That was the second. That was the number two feeling to describe 2020. It was lost for students and families. It was lost for weddings, holidays, funerals, communities. Lost so many things. And finally, chaotic. I mean, after all, seriously, what does toilet paper hoarding have to do with COVID-19? I mean, it was almost like a, a, a national systemic response, you know. You, it, we just jerked. And in, you know, a matter of hours, it was all gone. So I want to add one, I want to add another word that really, I think, comes to my mind, and that's lonely. I mean, especially for uh, the sick. I mean, just to be really honest about all of this stuff, you know, the care facility never did let me in to see A.J., not once. Wouldn't let me in. Scott's situation wasn't much better. A little bit. And as you know, Kathy was just let out of the hospital after a couple of weeks. Most of that in ICU. Barbara and I talked to her yesterday, and you may have read as well, that they were hoping at this care facility that she's in now, this rehab, that she could be on the bottom floor so that Fred could see her through the window. Seriously? See her through the window? He can't even hold her hand. Yeah, 2020. Jump the shark. I mean, I find all this very distressing. Lockdowns, quarantines, disruptions at Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, changes in our schedules and our habits, the need to carry masks, wear masks, hand sanitizer. You got them in your pockets, right? Got them in your jacket? If you don't, there's some at the back door. (laughs) It's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Social distancing. I mean, it's easy to see how we could describe 2020 as jumping the shark. And the hope for 2021, of course, is that it will uh, be better and it will not do that. So from a measure of success perspective... Other than a few mega corporations, not too many people are going to miss 2020. That's just the fact of it. But I got to wondering about this. How did God measure 2020? I mean, have you ever thought, what's the measuring rod? What's the metric that God uses? And specifically, what was the metric that God used for First Colony Bible Chapel. By what standard did he measure our success or failure? What metric did he use? There are a number of possibilities, and I'm going to focus on one as we go along, but is it our personal suffering? I don't think so. I mean, we're told 
that we're going to suffer. We're going to suffer physically. We're going to suffer emotionally. We're going to suffer spiritually. Welcome to the Christian life. So I don't think that's the measure of the church. Is it economic gain? The level of giving? Is that the measure? Educational achievement? What is it? Numerical church growth? Maybe the number of ministries or number of volunteers? Well, I mean, in fact, all of those do have merit. But fortunately, we don't, we don't have to guess. We actually, from the scripture, know how God measures success. And his metrics for success are found primarily in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And we're going to go to a couple of places, but this is, this is the text that we will primarily use. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let me summarize all of that in saying this. God's metric for the church revolves around maturing believers into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I mean, verses 11 through 16 are only two sentences. Now, today when they teach writing, you know, a sentence better be just a short thing, right? One subject, one predicate. You're probably all hearing that as I'm hearing it. See, there's either more of them or he's going in circles. I'm not sure. I'm not sure which, but I think we should... Uh, in your own minds, offer a prayer for whatever it is that they're going to. So it's two sentences all the way, all the way through here. If you were to put it on something like Grammarly or some little program right there, it would say, this, this sentence is way too long. You need to split it up. And so there it is, though. That's what we have. And so what does a sentence have? Right? A sentence has a subject and a sentence has a predicate. So it's got a it's got something that it's uh, that's saying, doing, what, or whatever, and then what is it? Uh, the subject is what you're talking about. The predicate is what you're saying about what you're talking about. More technically, right? You, you've got a like a subject. You got a verb. And in this particular sentence, there's there's one verb that it all rests on, and that's the word gave. Everything in this sentence is subordinate to this one verb, gave. Now, why is that important? Because we might otherwise think that it is what he gave is more important than the reason that he gave. And we need to understand that 
the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers are not the focus of the sentence. It's not how or who, it's, it's, it's the what. It's what they do. Biblically speaking, what they do is provide a pathway for maturing in Christ. Usually when we think of a successful uh, year, we're thinking of uh, maybe success in business or ministry accomplishment, levels of personal happiness. There's nothing wrong with those things, and I dearly hope that you have had some business success and that you are uh, have uh, levels of happiness that, that have persisted or even been gained through this year. But God's measurement doesn't revolve around those things. It revolves around spiritual maturity. So you know, there's been a great question that's gone on for millennia, and that's this. What is the purpose of the church? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question. What is the purpose of the church? Put it in a couple of metaphors. The first one is the church is a lighthouse. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on any of this. The church is a lighthouse. The church is a place where people come in order to hear about Jesus Christ so that they might be saved. The other metaphor is the church is a gas station. Right? And that would be that the the people, the believers, gather together in order to get fueled up to do the work of the ministry. So those are two different ways of looking at the purpose of the church. And from the time I was a new believer, I was told uh, that the purpose of the church is evangelism. Uh, as represented primarily in the book of Acts, I mean, we see how it, how it worked out. And as Acts is tied to chapter 16 of Mark, where the Great Commission there says, go and preach the gospel. Makes sense to me. Without new converts, church dies. Doesn't work. However, while I was at uh, Emmaus, we, I got a, a slightly different picture, and that was when Barbara and I, we took Evangelism 101 uh, from Dr. Dave Reed. Now, so if you don't know him, I can easily describe him to you. He's a man of uh, boundless energy and infectious optimism. You put those two together in a person, you got, you got Dave uh, Reed. And what I learned was that the commission to the church, particularly as found in Matthew 28, 18, and 19, was to make disciples. Now, this is an interesting. It's, this is an interesting way, and 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 we don't have the time to discuss the difference between Mark sixteen and Matthew twenty eight. But let me read twenty eight, eighteen, and nineteen to you. And Jesus came to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, Matthew 28 offers none of the complications, which we're not going to get into with Mark 16. But what we can say are a few things. One is evangelism is critical. 
However, we can also say that evangelism is not the only component about how God measures success. Now, if you look at this, it's right on the front of your bulletins, if you don't want to turn to it, it's right there. If you look at that, if you look at it casually, what you're going to say is that there's a main imperative. Go. The command is go. When you look at that. And I'm not going to quibble with the translators because they're not wrong. But you need to know something. Go's not an imperative. It's not in the text. I mean, go's in the text, but it's a participle. And it's actually linked to the main verb. It's actually linked to the verb that controls this entire text, which is make disciples. And it's not make disciples. It's strange. It's a single word. We don't have any kind of equivalent for it in, uh, in English. We, would ha- we have to use a phrase for their one word. I mean, in um, ordinary English, if we were going to give an imperative, we might say, cook dinner, okay? So the subject is you, it's, but it's, you know, it's presumed, right? You do what? Cook. Cook what? Direct object, dinner. So you got the subject, the verb, and the direct object. Boom, nice and simple. What you have here, though, is you, that's assumed, disciple-making kind of And I don't know how to say that in English. There's no way to do it. It's a single term. It's a verb. It is not a phrase. It is a a verb for what we're supposed to be doing. And so what we have is that we are to... A better way of saying this, and perhaps you've heard this before, is not go and, but it's as you are going, do this. It's as you are going, uh, make disciples. Well, how do we make disciples? Ephesians 4 is why we're there, because that fills that out. But I want to give you a few more thoughts on the Great Commission. Have you ever wondered why it's called the Great Commission? Okay, there's two things about, I mean, great, I don't think we need to talk about very much. But commission, there's two meanings. The first is very simple. It's a commission is a command. Go and do this. You uh, do so and so. And that sounds like what's happening here, but I don't think that's what's happening here. Because the second meaning of commission is this. A particular group of people charged with a specific function. So I want you to note in the text on the bulletin, it says, therefore... J. Vernon McGee and many others would often say, when you see a therefore, ask what it's there for. Why is it there? When he says therefore, what immediately precedes that? All authority has been given to me. Now, my question is this. Did he not have authority already? Of course he did. So what's happening here? What he's doing is making a pronouncement that I have all authority in heaven and earth. And what I'm doing is I'm commissioning you. I am commissioning you to operate in my authority, my executive authority. 
Now, I mentioned this once before, but I do want to drill down on it again because I believe it bears repeating, and that's based on one of the oldest institutions in our culture, and that is the military. And that's the distinction between officers and enlisted. And very few people, to include officers, know what that distinction actually is. I mean, because the officer commission does not simply distinguish the executive from, you know, the the technical labor force. That's not what it is. That has, in fact, it has nothing to do with that. In fact, the commission doesn't even necessarily determine the difference in the kinds of work that are done. Sometimes it's very similar. Sometimes it's precisely the same. Instead, the commission is a constitutional imperative. So let me say something to give you more context to this. In 1926, the Solicitor General uh, argued before the Supreme Court that, and this is the way it's been, by the way, since Rome, uh, commissioned officers are an extension of executive power. In other words, the officers uh, exercise power based on, on the authority of the president as Uh, through the Constitution. And they're not simply words. The the commissioned officer does not take an oath to the president. If you were ever enlisted, you know that you you have to obey the the orders of the officers above you and all that. Officers do not. Officers do not take that oath, and they don't take an oath to the president. They take an oath to the Constitution of the United States of America, and that is the authority that they operate under. And as few officers in the military understand what commission means, I don't think the church has a clue. I don't believe... There are very few believers who understand, first and foremost, that the commission is the lawful extension of sovereign power. You don't have to go there, but I'll read it to you. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Now we think, oh well, that's a nice little metaphor. You're a meta. You're a, you're an ambassador for Christ. No, you are an ambassador for Christ. As am I. Those of us who believe, we have been commissioned by God to be His ambassadors on this earth. And as we sojourn in this land, and this is one thing we really begin need to begin keeping in mind, and that's this. This is not our home. We belong to another kingdom, the kingdom of God. And when you gave your life to God, you became a member of that kingdom. And at that moment, you were translated, as the scripture says, into the kingdom of God's dear son. So the rest of your time on earth, you're not here just for you. You're here for others. And, and 
vast, but when you when you go outside, you are many times the only representative Christ that a person will ever see. And he's commissioned you to do something. He's commissioned you to make disciples on behalf of Christ himself, acting under his authority. So we have that. What does it look like? Back to Ephesians 4. That gives us the purpose. And the purpose is the maturing of the believers for the work of ministry. In verse 11, we see that Christ gives gifted people. Back to the sentence structure. He is emphatic. In other words, the Lord wants us to know that it's Christ himself who gives gifted people so that we might mature in Christ and that we might become doctrinally stable and practically stable as, as well, by the way. And that's what discipleship actually is. I mean, verse 12 tells us that gifted believers prepare God's people for the work of service. And the, the preparation, this equipping, the word here that's used is the mending of, of nets. So we're to mend, we're to bind things uh, together, and we're to be ready to minister to others, as Second Timothy 2 tells us. And the goal of all of this is the building up and edifying of the body of Christ. What does that show us? Because I'm... I'm building an argument, it might be subtle, but I hope it becomes clear. And that is this, that all of us, all of us, not just a few leaders, are involved in ministry. Verse 7, earlier, which is not part of our the text that we read, but it tells us that all saints are gifted, and we're all to serve, we're all to minister until... The church has attained three goals. First, unto the, in, uh, the unity of the faith, the full knowledge of the Son of God. Second, unto the mature man. And third, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And as each believer functions in that way, we find that the body is unified, spiritually mature, and more like Christ. So what we find in this purpose is that it is so that believers should not be like infant, immature infants, tossed by the waves, confused, to and fro, subject to trickery. The purpose is to bring us, all of us, to a place where we're speaking the truth in love so that it may grow up in him in reference to all things. It's an amazing, it's an amazing thing. So how does that tie into the Great Commission? Simply this. All too often, what we have done is we have said, that's the role of the missionary and that's the role of the evangelist. We have professionalized Christ's commission to each one of us. And we have abdicated the commission and given it over to others. And that is not what Christ measures success on. 
go preach the gospel is not just for missionaries, and it's not just for some class of person that where we can say, well, I don't have to do that. I don't need to do that. And if we take this more careful look at the Great Commission and we say, as you are going, that is, as you are living your life, as you move from one place to another, one job to another, one state of health to another, one economic level to another, one resourcing level to another, as you are going, make disciples. How do you do that? It, it tells us right in the text what that ultimate goal is. It is by engaging in whatever aids another believer to gain maturity in Christ. So, let me bring this to a very practical level. Far from the Great Commission being out there, it's, it's here. And it's, it's here, it's with you. You know, when you make a, fo- a phone call, to help somebody bear up under the pain that they're under and they gain a level of maturity from that, you are fulfilling the Great Commission. How many of you think about the Great Commission in your daily life? I mean, how often do I think about it? Not. Not often. Why? Because that's something big. It is not. It is as you are going, as you put your hand on somebody's shoulder, as you encourage them, as you sing a song, as you write a note, make a phone call, teach a Sunday school class, offer love and compassion to someone rather than judgment and alienation, you are in fact fulfilling the Great Commission. It is not out there. It's like Jesus Christ himself. It is near to us. He is near to us. I mean, I began this message by, I think, painting a rather dismal picture of 2020. But that's using my standard of success. I mean, based on the Lord's standard, I just want to say a few things about the chapel. In 2020, despite COVID-19, we never missed a church service. What I mean by that is that the word of God went forth every Sunday, every believer who wanted nourishment could find it. We operated face-to-face as soon as we could while maintaining standards. Every believer whose context allowed them to be face-to-face were able to do so. And I'll speak about online in a second. Koinonia was found. Our small groups continued. Intimate fellowship, teaching, prayer, was all available. You know, in a couple of weeks, we're going to scale up our operations and offer Sunday school. We've combated the fear and the loneliness and the stress by opening our Wednesday evening services. We've made phone calls, video programs, even a marriage enrichment seminar. And for those in quarantine or those who had I had to isolate for medical or other reasons who perhaps felt the most vulnerable. I want you to know that we reach deeply 
into our resource pocket. We reach deeply into our manpower pocket, at times taxing our maximum limit in order to develop a robust live streaming capability that gives our entire congregation the opportunity to worship together and the capacity to stay intact. We learn how to navigate Zoom. Some of us are tired of that. But you know, we got regular prayer requests, regular updates, and night light was installed for the glass. If you haven't driven by in the evening, you should. We went through Revelation. We learned what was, is, and what will be to come. There was a family retreat at camp. There was commitment to the development and growth. And I'm not mentioning names because I would get totally lost in all this, but I know who all you are. And guess what? You know who you all are, too. Development and growth of a vibrant young married couples group. Kids traveled back in time to understand grace and mercy and truth. Put a biblical timeline in the hallway. The chapel fellowship hall was used during the week for families to come and exercise and play and enjoy that resource because so many others were closed. The women's meeting flourished. We had a virtual Christmas program in addition to the Christmas program that we had as well as Christmas Eve. We had a men's retreat. The youth group marched on. We enjoyed the blessing truly of a world-class curriculum development. Weekly poster. We got a fiber optic cable so that we can all stay connected at the same time. We hosted a Spanish Valentine's dinner. The Matthews visited. We provided help for a Spanish teaching ministry. We even had the website engraved on the stone outside. Now, you know what? That's just what Barb and I came up with. Stan came up with a whole lot more this morning. Each one of you could come up with even more. Let me tell you that we have been careful and intentional about giving God the glory. And if in any of those things, if in any of those things, God granted you a measure of development of maturity in Jesus Christ. Then First Colony Bible Chapel fulfilled Christ's mandates in 2020. In the richest sense of the meaning, not some out idealistic sense, but in a real world, real time, some, as was already mentioned, the best and some the worst, we fulfilled God's great commission in the fleshing out of it in Ephesians 4 in 2020. The last thing I'd like to say is this. I pray God's blessing on us all, and I don't mean just us in here, in 2021. Father, it's difficult to measure success in difficult times. Actually, Lord, it's difficult to define success in difficult times. 
But Father, as you have commissioned us to make disciples, and that making disciples is actually a process of living our lives in moving towards maturity in Jesus Christ. Lord, the Great Commission comes to those who maybe physically can't do anything other than answer a phone, and it's just as valid for them as it is for anyone else. It's not a matter, Lord, of how much we do. It's that we do. It's that we offer love, compassion, understanding to those around us. It's that we do not judge one another needlessly and certainly not biblically, but it's that we care and that we continue as we are going to mature in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.